Welcome to IFA Talk, IFA Magazine's weekly podcast. IFA Talk is for professional investors only. Thank you. Thanks very much for joining us for the latest episode of IFA Talk, IFA Magazine's weekly podcast, where we talk to people who matter about the things that matter in the world of financial services. My name is Brandon Russell, and I'm the online writer here at IFA Magazine. And joining me on the podcast today is my co-host and IFA Magazine editor, Sue Whitbread. Hello, everybody. Uh, We've got an investment theme for today's IFA Talk podcast, as Brandon and I are pleased to introduce you to our guest, and it's David Appleton. David is Senior Investment Director at the Asset Manager Brooks MacDonald. David, welcome to IFA Talk. Thanks for joining us. Very welcome. Nice to see you, Sue. Uh, Could I... I'll start by asking you to tell us a bit about Brooks MacDonald, perhaps for any listeners who, who might not be familiar with the business, and, and also a brief summary of your role within the business. Sure, happy to. Yeah, so Brooks MacDonald is a, is a, a UK wealth management firm. Um, we manage about uh, just over £16 billion, um, on behalf of a, a wide range of uh, clients, but principally serving the advisor market. Uh, my specific role at, um, at Brooks is that um, I'm a co-manager of our risk-managed fund ranges, the Cornelian Fund ranges, which has about one billion under management. I've been doing that um, since 2013. And in addition to that, I also have a number of research responsibilities for the broader Brooks McDonald uh, business. So I head up the property team and I co-head the fixed income team and also sit on the alternatives team. So I'm quite closely involved in um, setting the you know setting the buy list for the broader Brooks McDonald business. Yeah, so David, it's great to have you on the podcast today. Just jumping straight into it then. These are certainly tricky market conditions at the moment. So could we start by asking you to explain to the listeners where you're seeing the biggest threats and opportunities for multi-asset investing just now, particularly given the current economic situation? Yeah, I think um, if you'd asked me you know, a month ago, I'd probably give you a slightly different answer. I think the developments in the banking sector in the last month are really important. Um, this is the first major test of the banking sector since the, the you know the post financial crisis reforms and unfortunately there have been some weaknesses revealed um, and I think that is really important because the you're likely to see um, a tightening of credit conditions um, as the as the banking sector becomes is more conservative in its lending and I think that has pretty profound implications for economic activity but also for monetary policy it may well be. Uh, it may well be the catalyst that stops central banks continuing to raise rates because they are now worried about the consequences of tightening financial conditions transmitted through the banking sector. Um, and that's really, it's really come from the United States again. You know, it's pretty frustrating, actually, um, uh, that, you know, having caused the great financial crisis through the subprime uh, issues, mm-hmm. we've now seen similar issues emerging from the US through weak regulation of their smaller banks. So um, some, you know, the, they have a different uh, approach to regulation where small banks do not, are not um, subject to the same degree of regulations, particularly around asset liability matching um, compared to Europe. And that's created uh, a lot of volatility. Three banks have already failed in the States. Big question marks around if there's other, uh, going to be other failures across 2,000 plus small and mid-sized regional banks in the States. And that then obviously more recently has um, caused uh, an extraordinary failure of a systemically important bank in Switzerland here in Europe. Um, you know, Credit Suisse was arguably the weakest in the chain um, in terms of it's had major problems, consistent problems with trying to uh, um, restructure its business and it's had a lot of scandals. And um, we had the extraordinary uh, um, takeover by UBS over the weekend, which really 
um, has created a lot of volatility um, and certainly caused a lot of volatility in the in the bond market because they um, the Swiss have surprised everyone by deciding to uh, fully write down um, some of their bonds while at the same time paying equity uh, three billion euros I think so that was a bit that's, tough, wasn't yeah. it? It's created a, it's 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 pretty scandalous. It's created huge spillovers into people worrying about other bonds and whether you can you know whether you can actually lend to banks and be confident in 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 the kind of return and risk profile that you're lending on. So yes, it's it's been pretty volatile. So that's been the big change. I was very constructive on fixed income, um, and the banking sector generally was was is very well capitalized. But I think um, this run on the banks has, has, has kind of changed things for now. And it's a big challenge for the policymakers to try and contain that. Um, uh, and that will undoubtedly lead to tightening financial conditions, um, which will make economic growth slow down, um, but also would potentially lead to less, uh, less interest rate hiking, which could be a positive um, mm. in terms of bringing forward the end of this monetary easing cycle, monetary tightening cycle. Last year, we certainly saw the unusual positive correlation, didn't we, between bond and equity prices and the concerns thrown up. You've just been talking about it then by the Credit Suisse debacle with relation to bonds. I wonder what your thoughts are on whether the old 60-40 approach to asset allocation in multi-asset, has that had its day, do you think? Yeah, I, I'm actually probably more constructive on that. I think the, the positive correlation you saw last year has actually restored the... Um, the potential defensive hedge that fixed income can provide portfolios because yields have repriced so much. Mm -hmm. So you now have the potential for government bonds in particular to act as a de defensive offset in a, in a weak economic environment. And that's because they, are, they reprice to be discounting higher interest rates. And of course, if you do get a worse economic outcome, um, those interest rates could fall because monetary policy could move to easing to try and support the economy again. So with you know, yields as high as 4 or 5% um, uh, in, in major developed um, bond markets like the US Treasury market, that creates you know, a pretty interesting opportunity for the first time in a long time to actually you know, have uh, a decent yield plus a defensive um, kind of anti-correlation in a, in a in a risk-off environment, and you've kind of seen that actually amid the volatility recently, where um, the reaction function of the government bond market was to for prices to rise and and yields to fall in response to the risk-off panic from the the fallout from the, the spillover from the banking sector. Now, I've, that's not the same for credit. So you've seen in credit and particularly higher higher yielding credit, more risky bonds correlate with equity as in sell off because people are re requiring a higher yield to compensate for the potential um, of rising default risk. So I would say you have to be very careful when you say 6040 that it, um, it depends where you're invested in that in, in the bond piece because if you're in very high risky debt then you would have a positive correlation with equities but equally if you're in you know long duration high quality government bonds then actually it would actually work well. So it, it, sorry, it's a it's a it's a convoluted answer, but I think that um, I don't think I think you know last year's really difficult experience actually has created a much more firm foundation for investing in fixed income, um, and we're actually quite excited by the higher yields that are on offer across lots of different asset classes within fixed income um, at the moment, and that's probably one of the 
the only upside really of the pain last year was um, much higher expected returns from a, a wide range of quote-unquote low-risk traditional asset classes that for us have not really been investable for, for 10 years because the yields were too low. Mm. It's interesting, isn't it, to see that that, that that view of yours, that it's not just one size fits all, that there are big differences now opening up in the fixed interest space. So that's really interesting to hear. Thank you. You are listening to IFA Talk, IFA Magazine's weekly podcast. Subscribe to us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts to be notified as soon as a new episode becomes available. And follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter and Instagram at IFA Magazine. Let's focus in a bit then on what you do at Brooks McDonald's. What is the Cornelian RMP range and what would you say makes it different from other multi-asset solutions? What's its USP, if you like? Sure. So um, we, we have, or I manage two different ranges at, uh, at Brooks. The, uh, our larger range, which has been going since 2010, which is the, uh, the unconstrained Cornelian fund range. But since we launched a, a new range in 2016, called the Cornelian Risk Managed Passive Range, the RMP range, which is um, predominantly uh, investing in, in passive instruments. It was designed as a lower cost kind of sister range to the main range to really help address the, the, the kind of advisor requirements for lower cost solutions. Um, in terms of what makes us different, I think we've designed our, our solutions very much with an advisor-led focus. And by that, I mean, we've we're, our investments are focused on outcomes. Um, all of our, our funds have got inflation-linked investment objectives, RPI plus investment objectives, because our view is that we wanted to design um, a, a fund range that was aligned with what clients care about and what advisors mm. are looking for, which is to meet you know, financial goals of their clients. Um, and at the same time, with a very strong focus on um, suitability. So from a risk perspective, we have, I think, a bit of a different approach. Um, we have a very clear risk budget for each of the funds, and we, we measure that using um, distribution technology, the dynamic planner risk profiles, the upper limits of those risk profiles. Um, but we that's effectively a hard ceiling. We'll never go above those levels of risk because we, we felt it was very important that financial advisors could have confidence that we wouldn't take more risk than the risk tolerance of their underlying client. Um, but at the same time, we have um, complete freedom to de-risk. And I think that's a really important um, element of the strategy that is if you are worried about the future, if, if we are worried about um, certain asset classes that we don't like, or if we want to really de-risk, we don't want to have any handcuffs when we're doing that. We want to preserve capital and be free to do so if we're really worried. And that's a really important element. So we don't have any fixed minimum allocations to equities or any other asset class. We can de-risk as much as we want. We don't have a minimum level of risk uh, and we're unconstrained in terms of the asset classes. So while it's it's predominantly invested through passive, we also um, are able to access a number of alternative asset classes like infrastructure and renewable energy and real estate, listed real estate through investment trusts, uh, as well as you know um, absolute return and hedge funds. So diversification is really, really important. It's a genuine multi-asset strategy. It's not a variation of, of 60-40. It's much more than just bonds and equities. Um, uh, and yeah, that's um, we think that kind of unconstrained approach gives us the best possible chance uh, of delivering those, those outcomes that we're trying to deliver. Cool. I think, uh, I think we get the picture on that one, David. Thanks. You, you mentioned costs there. And um, I wonder, it'd be good to get your views on due diligence here. 
because there are lots of factors that advisors will consider, obviously, when they're reviewing multi-asset funds and ranges for their clients. And I wonder how important, in your view, are the underlying costs? Because it gets a lot of column inches, doesn't it? It, it certainly does. Um, I would say that costs are very important. It's the one thing that we can control um, that definitely, with certainty, takes away from the gross investment return for our clients. And I think we've worked very hard, um, I'd say over the last five years, to drive down costs across our funds, both active and the passive side, as much as we can. We've, take, we've reduced our fees as a business. You know, we significantly cut our annual management fees last year across both the RMP and the, and the core range. But we also have worked very hard to um, really test value for money across when we're making investment decisions. So we negotiated very hard with leveraging the scale of Brooks McDonald to try and get um, you know, uh, reduced fees on active funds, but also to be constantly um, reviewing our passive options to take advantage of the fact that there is a lot of price deflation in the market and we're constantly reviewing um, you know, there's a lot of innovation, a lot of uh, you know, new products coming in that typically priced at a discount to the prevailing products. So we've been constantly um, uh, making sure that we've optimized our passive exposure to reduce costs. So I think costs are really important um, and we'll continue to fight really hard on behalf of our clients. Because if I had to criticize one part of the industry, I would say that the active industry has still not, um, you know, the passive industry has, has cut prices aggressively. I've not seen the same movement on the active side and I, and, and I would like to see more. You know, we've cut our fees, the passive industry has cut their costs. I don't see much movement on the active side yet. And that's, that's disappointing and it's something that we will continue to fight hard for because I think everyone knows that there is pressure to reduce overall cost of investments. But saying all that, I would also highlight that um, we would never make an investment decision based purely on cost. Um, and there are some asset classes where it's not possible to invest passively. You know, we also invest directly in quite a lot of areas. So UK equities, uh, we invest directly. Um, government bonds, we invest directly. Um, but there's some areas actually where the industry, I think the de definition of costs, so the, the measurement of costs has got some major problems at the moment. And actually there's two consultations at the moment um, that I've been participating in on behalf of Brooks McDonald, which is the repeal of the PRIPS regulations mm -hmm. uh, and also the future disclosure consultation run by the FCA, because um, not, it's not that well understood that the UK has adopted PRIPS two years ahead of everyone else in, the, in Europe and apply, but applied it only to investment companies. Um, and 40% of, of the FTSE 250 is in investment companies that have been designated as PRIPs and have to report their costs. And sometimes those costs can be reported as very high. You know, for, for example, some real estate investment trusts have got costs of, of, of as high as 7%. And that's because the PRIPs methodology is totally not fit for purpose and includes a whole host of costs which I don't think advisors or other investors would think of as being investment costs, things like financing costs, business rates, things like that. And we are the only market in the world that does that. The UK has completely diverged from, from every other uh, market in the, in the world, including in the EU, you know, PRIPS is EU regulations, but not a single real estate investment trust in the EU, EU reports costs and charges. You know, we've dramatically expanded the, the, the kind of the retail product cost disclosure regime to you know, forty percent of the companies in the FTSE 250, and that's a really that's really problematic because um, 
you're starting to get now where a lot of people will be selling out of investments to try and manage their reported costs. It's, you know, we've, the investment trust sector has been, in my view, one of the greatest success stories of our industry over the last 15 years. You know, we've effectively provided the bulk of the capital that has um, financed the energy transition. You know, 50% of the battery storage in the UK has been financed through investment trusts. Huge amounts of the renewable energy power generation has been financed through investment trusts. Those companies are now at a competitive disadvantage because their equivalents in Australia, in America, in France, in Germany, et cetera, are just treated as companies and don't report costs. So there's a huge inequity there, which I'm hoping the, the reviews at the moment will, um, uh, by the regulators, will effectively take out a lot of these companies from the costs and charges regime. And I would just caution that in the moment, you know, our fixation on that one number, there are some big problems because it, there's a real inconsistency. And I would also highlight that a lot of global asset managers don't follow the rules. So the IA updated its guidance, the Investment Association in 2020, and it asked all of the fund managers to include investment trusts effectively in the reported costs. Now, all of the index providers as global asset managers have got, have got concerns with that because they sell the products all over the world and they, were, and they came to a view that they couldn't just unilaterally adopt the UK's you know, measure of costs. But what that means is that a lot of the passive-based products are effectively under-reporting their costs versus active equivalents. So mm -hmm. if you take BlackRock, for example, and we're a client of BlackRock as well as a competitor, you know, their view is that they, you know, they've got a global, uh, a global policy, which is they will not include investment companies in reported costs because they don't think they can do it on a consistent basis. And their view is that they have to present clear, fair, and not misleading cost disclosures. Mm -hmm. And I would agree with that. But what that means is that their FTSE 250 ETF has got zero synthetic costs and their iShares, you know, the property ETF has got zero synthetic costs. That puts them at a competitive advantage and an unfair competitive advantage through regulatory arbitrage versus active peers like us who do report all the costs in line with IA guidance. So, you know, the regulators have created a, a pretty problematic view here. Everyone should have confidence that when they can compare and contrast two products that they're comparing like for like. That's not the case today. Um, and, we, you know, I've worked very hard on the engagement side um, uh, with people like the AIC, the IA, EPRA, which is the European Public Real Estate Association, and the British Property Federation to provide evidence to the authorities of the scale of this divergence and, and the problem, because regulations now have to be um, also think about competition for the first time. That's a statutory obligation now of the regulators. And quite clearly, UK listed companies are now at a profound competitive disadvantage to equivalents in other markets because they are classified as investment funds and have to report costs. So it's, it's a bit of a technical issue. It's a bit boring to some people. To me, it's a bit of a passion for mine because I really think it matters. Um, I think people should need to be able to trust in that cost number. It's probably the biggest single driver of commercial success in our industry. It's such an important metric. You know, the, the costs of investment is pretty much one of the first things that all decision makers look at. So they have to be able to trust that number. So um, all I want is a, is a level playing field. Um, you know, we will always do the right thing and follow the rules. Um, but it's true. It's really important that those rules are fit for purpose. And that's, I guess, one of the true, the, the great opportunities we have is that we can design our own rules now and that are fit for the UK market. And I hope that the, you know, the authorities grab that opportunity with both hands.
No, I agree with you. And as you say, lack of lack of level playing field just doesn't work in anybody's best interests at yeah. all, does it? So, David, we're going to have to wrap up there for today. Thank you very much. And I'm sure our listeners will be reassured to hear about the strong relations that Brooks has with advisors, uh, particularly the focus on value for money you talked about and the element of suitability for client objectives. I'm sure those are words that will resonate loud and strongly with our audience today. Thank you for sharing your thoughts with us. It's been really great to talk. Very welcome. Good to see you. Thank you. IFA Talk is for investment professionals only. All material has been carefully checked for accuracy, but no responsibility can be accepted for inaccuracies. Whatever appropriate, independent research, and whatever necessary, legal advice, should be sought before acting on any information contained in this podcast. And value of investments and income from them can go down as well as up. You may not get back the amount you originally invested.